Okay, so we're looking at the marks of the church. What are the three marks of the church? Doctrine, ordinances, and discipline. Doctrine, ordinances, and discipline. That's right. And so we've looked at baptism. Doctrine, ordinances, and discipline. And so this evening we're going to be looking at uh, the, the second ordinance that we do. So baptism is the first. What's the second? Lord's Supper. Uh, I've been very thankful to the book that's edited by uh, Mark Dever called Baptist Foundations. And his outlining, um, actually he didn't outline this particular chapter on the history of the Lord's Supper. A guy named Sean Wright did. I was very thankful for it. And some of this, I, I just want to, some of this is outlined from there and some of it is not. Um, but I just want to be forthcoming in that. So as we look at the Lord's Supper this evening, uh, the Lord's Supper is one of the more controversial subjects that exists out there. And so his, we want to look at the, the history of the church and what different views they have held regarding the Lord's Supper, and maybe even asking why did they hold those views. But before we do that, I want to, I want to quote Spurgeon. Just quote Spurgeon for a second, and then I want, to, I want to follow up the quote of Spurgeon with some questions for you to think about, not necessarily answer. This is what Spurgeon said about the Lord's table. He says, quote, I thank God that coming to this table every Sabbath day, as some of us do, and have done for years, we have yet for the most part enjoyed the nearest communion with Christ here that we have ever known. End quote. Spurgeon speaking to his congregation, speaking of communion in their church, that they, they experienced the greatest and closest communion with our Savior in the communion. So let me ask you, when you think of the Lord's Supper, do you view it in those terms? Is the Lord's Supper something we do out of habit, or is there an intended scriptural purpose for our benefit in the Supper that Spurgeon experienced? and his congregation experienced as well. I want us to think about that as we look at what the Lord's Supper is. There's, for the most part, there seems to be widespread misunderstanding of the Supper, and COVID particularly exploited those misunderstandings, where you would see drive-up communion, uh, you, you would see communion at your home through the computer, uh, all sorts of different ways were, were devised to, to have cum, communion, which tells us that it was largely misunderstood. And I, I'll say this, I think, I think the most guilty group are Baptists on understanding the Lord's Supper. By not thinking deeply upon the Scriptures in terms of the Supper, and not thinking about how meaningful it has been through uh, for the church, in the history of the church. 
And so my hope is that this evening, as we begin a historical study and a biblical study, we'll come to a greater appreciation of the table and the benefits um, to the Christian life and to our body as as a church as a whole. And as we look at the different views, it will challenge us to think about what it is that we believe about the supper and what we actually believe about Christ himself. So there are four primary views of the Lord's Supper between Catholics and Protestants. Can anyone tell me what those four views are? What's the what's the Roman Catholic view of, of Lord's Supper? What's it called? Transubstantiation. The second is the Lutheran view. Does anyone know what that's called? Consubstantiation. There's a uh, third view. It's it's known it's known by the name of the person that held the view. Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli. And then there's a fourth view. Calvin's view. You know, it's funny, just as a historical side, to be called a Calvinist during Calvin's time didn't mean that you held to a certain view of God's sovereignty. Everyone just believed that. It's only become controversial today. To be a Calvinist during Calvin's time meant you held Calvin's view of the Lord's Supper. A little historical factoid there for us. Uh, but those are the four views. Now, transubstantiation, if you take those two words p- apart, the prefix trans means cross, to cross over something, and substantiation is substance. So it's a substance being moved. That's what transubstantiation literally means. But according to the Catholic Catechism, they write this, quote, At the heart of the Eucharistic celebration are the bread and wine, that by the words of Christ and the invocation of the Holy Spirit become, so the bread and wine become Christ's body and blood. Faithful to the Lord's command, the church continues to do so in his memory. Notice that's a memorial. So so let's, let's always represent those with whom we disagree correctly. There is a memorial aspect to it, but it's also, they believe, in an actual change of substance. And until his glorious return, what he did on the eve of his passion, he took bread, he took the cup filled with wine, the signs of bread and wine become, in a way, surpassing understanding the body and blood of Christ. So that's according to the Catholic Catechism. So they would believe, and they made this distinction through... Uh, Aquinas actually made this distinction through Aristotle about how it can be like we look at it and we say, wait, that's bread. That's clearly wine. That tastes like bread. That clearly tastes like wine. Well, Aquinas did some philosophical juggling and said, yeah, but it actually in its, it's, it's actually changed. It remains that, but it's changed in its properties to that. R.C. Sproul says, According to Rome, the miracle in the miracle of the Mass at the prayer of consecration, the substance of the elements is transformed supernaturally into the substance of the body and blood of Christ. But the accident 
of the bread and wine remain. The bread still looks like bread, tastes like bread, feels like bread, and smells like bread, but it's not bread. The substance of it, the essence of it, has been supernaturally transformed to the body, the flesh of Jesus Christ. And so that is a basic view, but the bigger picture uh, is, as much as I would say I disagree with that, the bigger picture in the practice of the Lord's Supper in the Roman Catholic tradition is that it's, it's actually a propitiatory sacrifice of Christ every time. And so then they would say this is that, yes, Christ was sacrificed before the Father on the cross. That happened one time. However, because we continue to sin, there needs to be a continual act of propitiation taking place. And so every time there is the Mass, there is a re-sacrifice of Christ through the elements of the Lord's table. One thing I notice, sorry if I interrupt, but one thing I notice is that in their opinion of what it is, there's no scripture foundation behind that they use to give their opinion, number one. And number two is um, there's something in Scripture that really goes against the fact that it's propitiation all over again every time they do it. Because in the Bible it says once and they, they acknowledge that. It's, it's actually not true that they don't use Scripture. They certainly do use Scripture. Absolutely. I, I would just say they misinterpret it. They recognize that. And they, they I mean, uh, you're dealing with people that have been working through these arguments uh, for, for hundreds of years. And so they, they have their scriptural references. Um, I would just reject the, the, their interpretation of them. Because as we get to Luther, Luther's going to make a similar argument, not on a re-sacrifice, but Luther's going to make the same argument about the elements. And so they, in, in Roman Catholicism, the, the Mass is a presentation of Christ as a sacrifice in the elements. Now the second view is consubstantiation, which was held by Martin Luther. So our... Mine, I'll, I'll speak for myself, my hero of the faith held a view that I would totally disagree with on this. Uh, and that is this, it's, it's, it's really actually hard to distinguish Luther's view from the Roman Catholic view. So here's his difference. He did not believe that the Eucharist, that there was a sacrifice taking place. And further, he did not believe that at the words of the priest, they changed but rather in the practice they were changed. And he also believed that they changed as they're received by faith. So Luther has a slight nuance on this. Luther believed that the Lord's, or the Lord's Supper was the sum and substance of the gospel. We would, we would agree with that for the most part. Luther primarily held this view because of Christ's words he saw as being literal. In Matthew chapter 26, this is where the hang-up was for Luther. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, we read these words. 
Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus, or Luther was saying, look at Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. We have to take that seriously, what Jesus was saying there. Now, the Reformation started really primarily with Luther, right? And instead of having unity in the Reformation, guess what took place almost immediately? Division. Actually, that was one of the things that the, the, the Roman Catholic Church said to Luther. Hey, look, if you give everyone a Bible, everyone's going to be free to believe whatever they want. You're going to have all sorts of divisions. And they were right. But actually, we see that some of those things are good. And so, there's a division here between Luther and the Reformers. So, we have a Lutheran denomination, right? And then you have all of these other different denominations. Lutheran, the Lutheran denomination held to their view on the Lord's Supper, and thus was birthed the Lutheran Church. And it was over, it was over the Lord's Supper. His opponent, as Stephanie mentioned, was Ulrich Zwingli, who held a different view um, than Luther. And they had a debate it's called the Marburg Colloquially, and it was in 1529. And they came together, they wrote out 14 points, actually 15 points of doctrine. The first 14 points they, they agreed on, they all signed their names to. They got to the 15th point, and Zwingli could not sign his name to it, because he did not believe that the bread turned into the body of Christ, and that the wine turned into the blood of Christ. And so Zwingli would not sign it. And in their debate, it was said that as they're going back and forth, and if you know anything about Luther, Luther was ill-tempered and uh, sometimes crude. Well, he, he was writing into the table with a knife, this is my body, this is my blood. And that was the famous part of the, the debate. They walked away from one another. They never reconciled. In fact, when Zwingli, who turned out to be a war hero and decided to go into the, to the war, even as a pastor, he, he died in battle. Luther says that serves him right for doing for thinking he should do that. And so they did, they never reconciled. Luther was was angry with him, and uh, unfortunately, they could not come together. The Zwingli view. Can anyone tell me what the Zwingli view is? It's the memorial view. Here's the problem. Zwingli didn't actually hold a memorial view. It's become known as that, but when you actually read Zwingli, his view is slightly different than that. He holds to the memorial aspect of the Lord's Supper, that it is a memorial. And so a lot of times people will say, especially in Baptist circles, well, I hold the Zwingli view, and I'll ask them what, they hold, what view they hold, and I, you actually don't hold Zwingli's view. But that's... What so many say. Listen to what Zwingli himself wrote. He says, quote, 
I believe that in the Holy Eucharist, the Supper of Thanksgiving, the true body of Christ is present by the contemplation of faith. Here is language. The true body of Christ is present by the contemplation of faith. This means that they who thank the Lord for the benefits bestowed on us in His Son acknowledge that He assumed true flesh, in it truly suffered, truly washed away our sins by His blood, and this everything done by Christ becomes, as it were, present to them by the contemplation of faith. But that the body of Christ in essence, and really the natural body itself is present in the supper, or masticated, that means chewed, without, with mouth and teeth as the papist, or some who look back on the flesh pots of Egypt assert, we not only deny, but constantly maintain to be an heir contrary to the word of God. So the Zwingli view is certainly memorial. This is a symbol of Christ's body and blood. But notice what he says. We actually receive the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper by faith. So what's he talking about? A spiritual presence of Christ. Now, as the debate... That's by by our faith, then, is how we receive it? It's an act of faith on our part. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as the debate surged between Lutherans and the Reformers, this issue came up over and over again about the body and blood. And here's a couple things we have to think about in in terms of our Christology. And so I'm going to ask you some questions. Because let's say if you had to go back to the 1500s and you're there before Brother Luther, who's a doctor of theology, incredibly influential, and you have to go and talk to Brother Luther about this. How are you going to argue with him? So, let me ask you a couple questions. Is Christ still man right now? Yes. Christ is absolutely still man. We expect, we are waiting for the what? Bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it say in Acts 1.11? As he ascended, as you see him go, so he will return. The humanity and the deity are forever united. So here's the problem with the Lutheran position. If Christ resides in heaven in bodily form, how can he be everywhere all at once? So the Lutherans came up with the term ubiquity. You know what ubiquity means? In about a week from now, Santa Claus will be quite ubiquitous. Everywhere you go, you will see what? Santa Claus. He's everywhere. So they came up with that term ubiquity, meaning that Christ is actually in his humanity omnipresent. He is everywhere. And where did they get this idea, you ask? Matthew chapter 22, verse 44, where it says this, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now you might be wondering, how do they get this omnipresence of Christ physically from that passage? Well, here's the the thing. Is God the Father physically with his right hand in heaven? No. 
He's not. So that is a position of power and authority. And so they took that verse and said, see, that's symbolic of something. So it shows us that Christ is actually everywhere if he's ruling at the right hand of the Father because we know the Father is spirit. The Father doesn't have a right hand. And so that's the verse that they use. Now we would say, well, that's kind of a silly argument. But actually, if you begin to think about why they made that argument, it makes sense. I, I don't agree with it, but it makes sense why they would, they would make that argument. And so, in essence, the Lutherans, as I understand their doctrine, have a Christological issue regarding the true humanity of Christ. Calvin said this about it, unless the body of Christ can be everywhere at once, without limitation of place, it will not be credible that he lies under the bread in the supper. To meet this necessity, they have introduced the monstrous notion of ubiquity. Don't you love how they talked then, this monstrous idea of ubiquity? Now, what, what is their view of the work of the Holy Spirit? Uh, I mean, that, that would certainly be how we would view Christ as present today. Amen. Yeah, that's how we would view it too. They did not. They, they saw the importance of the humanity of Christ, the flesh of Christ, and the blood of Christ. That's what the Lutherans were really trying to preserve. And so, uh, I think that they, they, they messed up on that view. Now, Calvin's view is called, so Zwingli's view is historically called the memorial view. Calvin's view is called the spiritual presence view, which is not actually quite accurate because we already saw Zwingli's view was spiritual presence as well, and Calvin's is a little different. So how is the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper to be thought of? Calvin asks this question. He answers it this way. We must establish such a presence of Christ in the supper as may neither fasten him to the element of bread, nor enclose him in bread, nor circumscribe him in any way. Finally, such as may not take from him his own stature or parcel him out to many places at once. So what's he going after there? The doctrine of ubiquity. He can't be parceled out in all of these different places. He says, we can't invest him with boundless magnitude to be spread through heaven and earth. In other words, you just can't take the body of Christ and spread it everywhere. When you think about how many people are doing the Lord's Supper every Sunday in the world. And are we to believe that his human body was spread out everywhere in, in those little cups and in the bread everywhere across the globe. That's, that's what Calvin is basically saying. He says, for these things are plainly in conflict with a nature truly human. So, Calvin's opposition to Luther is based on his Christology. It's based on his doctrine of Christ. He says that can't happen because of Christ is in heaven as the God-man. He goes on to say, but when, we, when these absurdities have been set aside... <laughs> Again, I love how he speaks when these absurdities have been set aside. He says, I freely accept whatever can be made to express the true and substantial partaking of the body and blood of the Lord, which is shown to believers under the sacred symbols of the supper. And so express 
that they may be understood, not to receive it solely by imagination or understanding of mind, but to enjoy the thing itself as nourishment of eternal life. Now, one of the things he made the point of, again, Calvin in distinguishing his view, he pointed to John chapter 12, verse 8. which reads this, For the poor you always have with me, always have with you, excuse me, but you do not always have me. What is that an indication of? What's that verse saying? Yeah, Christ is going to go away, that he's not going to be physically with them anymore. But then he was quick to point out which verse are we promised Christ's presence. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 20. Yep. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So do we believe in the spiritual presence of Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely we do. So, to sum up some of this, of Calvin's view, the presence of Christ's body and blood in the elements is affected by the Holy Spirit, is an actual or true presence of his person. This is coming from the Calvin Handbook. Without his leaving his place at the right hand of God and without a presence of the substance of his flesh and blood. That's kind of a confusing thing. Basically, he's saying Christ is spiritually in the elements when we partake of him. That's what Calvin was basically saying. He says, the Lord, again, it's from the same book, the Lord's Supper is a communal meal with Christ and his members, a commemorative meal and a confessional meal. It strengthens faith. And he said, another thing of his point is this the gift given is the total Christ and his merits is content, the content of the Lord's Supper. So, what are our four views of the Lord's Supper that the church has historically held? Yeah, what was Wingley's view? More and more. That's how it's typically, although we saw that that's not completely accurate. And then what was Calvin's view? Yeah, so now the question comes, all right, so what do Baptists hold? Well, they universally reject transubstantiation and consubstantiation. But between Zwingli and Calvin, traditionally... What position do you think Baptist hold held? Both. They held both. In fact, in reading the 1689 London Confession of Faith, it says this, The supper of the Lord was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance. So, this idea of perpetual remembrance is what? And showing to all the world the sacrifice of himself and his death. Confirmation of the faith of believers in the, all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment. Who, who did that kind of sound like? Kind of sound like Calvin. And growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him. And to be bond and a pleasure 
their communion with him and with each other. In this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real, real sacrifice made at all for remission of sin of the quick or dead. So who's that, who's that rep- going after there? No, that's actually going after Catholicism. In this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his Father, like as in a sacrifice, but only a memorial of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all, and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same. So that popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominable, injurious to Christ's own sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. Go on to say in paragraph 3, The Lord Jesus hath in this ordinance appointed his ministers to pray and bless the elements of bread. So that's an important point there because they're now identifying who is it that gives this out? Who gives administers this? And blesses the elements of bread and wine and thereby to set them apart from a common to a holy use and to take and break the bread, to take the cup, and they, communicating also themselves to give to the communicants. The denial of the cup to people, worshiping the elements, the lifting them up, that was a big thing. In fact, in the Reformation in England, uh, there was one of the... um, uh, the, the parish priest that lifted up the bread, and a, I forget her name now, but she threw a chair at him and said, you're not going to bring that in here because they were returning to Catholicism. Somewhat of a, of a, of a, of a Deborah-type figure in the Reformation that would be so bold to do that. So the lifting them up and carrying them about for the adoration and reserving them for any pretended religious use are all contrary to the nature of this ordinance and to the institution of Christ. They go on to say, the outward elements in this ordinance duly set apart to the use ordained by Christ have such relation to him crucified as that truly, although in terms used figuratively, they are sometimes called by the names of the things they represent. In other words, the body and blood of Christ. Albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. So they're addressing both Lutherans and Roman Catholicism there. That doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by consecration of a priest or by any other way is repugnant not to Scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason, overthrows the nature of the ordinance and has been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, gross idolatries. Now, who receives it? Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, do then also inwardly by faith. So now you're capturing both Zwingli, Luther, and Calvin in that statement. Really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporately, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified 
and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporately or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. Finally, all ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ, so are they unworthy to the Lord's Supper and cannot without great sin against Him, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted thereunto. Yea, whosoever shall receive unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, eating and drinking judgment to themselves. So they actually, traditionally, Baptist held that view that was both what could be considered memorial and spiritual. And let's just, we'll just say, what did Spurgeon believe? And that settles it. Well, Spurgeon, actually, it's debated of what he believed, but I'll tell you from everything I can read of Spurgeon, it's clear that he held very much a spiritual presence view and a memorial view at the same time. Pretty much everyone holds the memorial view. That's kind of just like a given but from what I can tell, Spurgeon definitely would have held to the, the spiritual blessing of it. And so, I think that that settles it with Spurgeon. Now, what do we call it? Let's look at a couple passages. We're going to look at five passages. So, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And if everyone turns there, I want you to tell me what it's called in that verse. Breaking of bread. Okay, so does everyone see that? So what's the Lord's Supper called in Acts chapter 2, verse 42? The breaking of bread. So would it be inappropriate to say, when we do our, our communion, we're, 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 we're celebrating the breaking of bread? Would that be inappropriate? Not at all. It's totally appropriate. It's scriptural, right? Let's go to Matthew chapter 26, verse 27. Tell me what you see there. This one is a little bit trickier. So 26, 27 in Matthew. You might not see it. It's not going to stand out. Two words. One word in the Greek, two words in the English. Given thanks. Anyone want to take a guess what the Greek word sounds like? Eucharist. Why is it sometimes called Eucharist? Because it's a time of giving thanks. I, I think that we so many wrongly assume that the, the Eucharist is just a Roman Catholic thing, and that's what they call it, but not, Eucharist means give thanks. It's actually in the text. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 16. Tell me what you see there. This one again is not as obvious. Is the bread which we break? Yep. This one's actually going to be one word. Participation. Participation. Which also can be translated... Communion. Yeah, communion. So why do we call it communion? 
because of our participation in the cup of blessing with one another. We call it communion. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11, chapter or 11, verse 20, and tell me what you see there. Lord's Supper. Go back a chapter, chapter 10, verse 21. Yeah, the Lord's table. So we see five words in Scripture used to describe what it is we do. So breaking of bread, uh, given thanks or Eucharist, communion, Lord's Supper, Lord's table. Which one should you call it? Yes. Yes. I think each of those gives us a different idea of what we're doing, right? Now, something that most people agree on is this, is that the Lord's Supper is a biblical ordinance. So, denominationally, cross-denominationally, we'd agree that Lord's Supper, even in Roman Catholicism, it's, a, it's an ordinance. Everyone agrees on that. I think everyone would agree the importance and vitality of it for the Christian life. Um, most everyone agrees it's restricted to those that are baptized. Now, what are some Baptist distinctives? And this comes from Baptist Foundations. I'm going to give these to you. And the next week, what we will do is we're going to actually examine in depth the scriptural passages. But this is six distinctives. It visibly reminds us of Christ's death for us and what he accomplished on our behalf. So, as we go to the Lord's table, these are things to think about. That it, it, it is a visualization of the gospel. The supper reminds us to continually trust Christ. As food gives us nourishment, and we, we're reminded of that we need nourishment to survive. So, the Lord's table reminds us of our need for Christ to spiritually nourish us. The Lord's table, it portrays the Father's gracious character and love for those who believe. It reminds us that God initiated a relationship with you in the new covenant. It testifies that God is faithful to his people. So every time we partake in it, we remember God is faithful to us. And that's visibly represented. It visibly shows the unity we share in Christ. And how is that the case? Because we do this as a family together. It proclaims the gospel, and it fills us finally with hope of Christ's return. So let me, let me go back to Spurgeon. Spurgeon said this, I thank God that coming to the table every Sabbath day as some of us do and have done for years, we have yet for the most part enjoyed the nearest communion with Christ here that we have ever known. May that be our goal, is that when we partake in the Lord's Supper together as a body, that we are experiencing that nearness of Christ with one another and with Christ himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy that you show us and remind us 
of in the, in the Lord's table, where we, we come face to face with the fact that Christ gave up his body and sh- his blood was shed on our behalf. And how we're reminded of that truth and our, our need of Christ continually. And how the Lord's table instills in us a hope that Christ will, will return one day for his church. And how in that we are reminded of your love for your people, that you are steadfast in your love, that you are a covenant-keeping God that does not break any promises. And how the Lord's table reminds us of this. Father, I pray that we would think deeply upon these things and that your word would continue to edify us and mature us and shape us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.